It's time for the sermon, and I direct you to the eight and a half by 11 page and the notes that follow. Often I have an outline, and today the outline is in my head and I hope in your hearts soon because it uh, is simple. Our story, of course, today has to do with the time of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when, according to Mark and according to John's Gospel, Jesus was in agony even beyond that which we read about in Matthew's, in Matthew's Gospel. And in this lesson on Jesus in the Garden, we learn about the humanity of Jesus and us, the humanity of Jesus and us, and we learn lessons on discipleship from Jesus. Jesus is humanity and ours. We're going to compare them, and then we're going to notice lessons on discipleship which are embedded in this passage. Because although it is historical, it really happened. We know where the Mount of Olives uh, was. We know there was a Caiaphas. We know that there was uh, the geography and everything else winds up. It's an historical um, fact. But at the same time, Matthew and the Holy Spirit have embedded lessons in between the lines of the story, as it were. So we want to empathize with Jesus this afternoon. In his humanity, we want to identify with our own humanity, and we want to look at lessons for discipleship that are really peppered throughout this passage. I want to begin with our humanity, because it's the foil against which we come to understand the gospel. And as I said two weeks ago in our sermon, the beginning of the passion narrative, or the beginning of the story of Jesus' suffering, there's a temptation when we read the story all the way through to think that this is about other weak people. This is about people who don't have their act together as well as you and I might think we do. And even as committed Christians, we can continue to believe this. We have been regenerated. We are now maybe in leadership in the church. We lead a small group, something. And um, those hard lessons about failure are for the less initiated. I mean, after all, I've been going to church for this long, or after all, I've been a Christian leader for that long. Here we see good old Peter, who is an example of a very strong Christian. He was one of Jesus's favorites. Peter meant well. Uh, Peter was earnest in his faith. And here, after Jesus makes a prediction, that all of the disciples will be scattered like sheep because God will strike the shepherd. Here, quoting from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, Jesus drops the bad news on them. The sheep of the flock will be scattered. And then he announces good news in verse 32. But after I'm raised, I shall go ahead of you to Galilee. Folks, there's darkness on the horizon. But after I'm resurrected, I'm going to regather you. And I'm going to commission you, and everything's fine. But all that Peter hears is the bad news. And he protests. And he says, in contradiction to Jesus, should everyone else stumble, well, Jesus said that everyone would, and fall away because of you, I myself will never stumble and fall away. 
There's bravado for you. Here is a spiritually mature follower of the Messiah Jesus, who, after all, has been pretty earnest, pretty faithful, pretty committed. He's open, and there's no question that he loves Jesus. But he says, I will never stumble and fall away. <laughs> Jesus corrects him in verse 34, and he says, not only never will you fall away, but before the next morning, you will have denied me three times. And Peter comes back again, and he corrects him. Though it be necessary for me to die, to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. There's something about human pride that keeps us from God. Scripture says this from one end of the book to the other. And there's something about pride that affects all of us, even some of the most mature Christians I know. There's something that just kind of kicks in that's part of our DNA that would rather we cling to our own sense of self-worth and dignity and esteem, and we plow through, and we can even contradict Scripture by saying, Lord, you died on the cross for everyone else. You just got injured there for me, because after all, I love you. I'm a faithful Christian. And a few weeks ago, we learned that the primary lesson of the passion narrative of the story of Jesus' suffering is that we need to set aside our pride and we need to accept the fact that we don't match up, that we fail, that none of us here could do anything to deserve the favor of God. And that's why Jesus died. Here Jesus even explores the possibility that maybe he doesn't have to go through this cup. Maybe it can be avoided somehow. But the silent echo that comes from heaven confirms to Jesus, no, it's necessary that I have to die. And my friends, if God could have possibly avoided allowing his son to die, he would have. And he did it for a very good reason, and that is that you and I need him very much. And the prouder we are, Kind of the more we like to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, which many of us do. You know, try lending one of you 50 cents and see how you sit with it. You want to reach in your pocket and say, I'll pay you back the next time. No, no, no. I don't want to be in your debt. Well, Christians are in the debt of Jesus, and that's your ticket in. He's going to die on the cross for you this week, so to speak, in the passage. And you have to let him. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And the way up, pride is the way down. The way down, humility, confession, is the way up. I believe it was Chrysostom who said that instead, Peter should have said, instead of, should everyone else stumble and fall away because of you, I myself will never stumble and fall away. Jesus, you're right. I need you, and you are my only hope. Superman, among the disciples, says never. And within hours, he'd done it three times. I dare suggest that you're not going to fare any better, nor am I. So there's the story of our humanity. But there's also the story of Jesus' humanity. And we can take lesson from the story of Jesus' humanity in this passage, 
because here we see the humanity of Jesus in ways that we rarely get a chance to see anywhere else. Jesus comes unglued. And who wouldn't, given what he's about to face? But Jesus becomes sorrowful and consternated. And he says, I tell you, I'm so distraught. It's like I'm going to die. In the garden, starting in verse 36, he comes with them and he says to the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And then taking his three friends who had seen his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration and who had also promised that they could drink the cup with him, Jesus begins to be sorrowful and deeply consternated, and he says to them, my soul is sorely sad to death. Remain here and be alert with me. We see two things in the humanity of Jesus here. We see a vulnerable Jesus, and a Jesus who even uh, entertains the possibility that the prediction that he has made about his own death might possibly be up for negotiation somehow. And who wouldn't bring this before God and say, God, I'm willing to do this, but if there's any way around it, please let this pass by me. The words pass by are mentioned twice in relation to the cup. And they are the same words that occur in Exodus chapter 12, verse 23, in the Greek translation of Exodus 12, where God will pass by the houses where the blood of the lamb is shed. Jesus prays that this cup might pass by from him, but it cannot. Because if it passes by him, we all shall die. Jesus here is incredibly vulnerable. And I want us to remember that Jesus did not float a foot off the ground because he was divine. In fact, all the way back in Matthew chapter 4, as soon as Jesus is declared to be the Son of God, he's driven by God into the wilderness in order to be tempted by Satan. And here we see the same dynamic that Satan is wanting to undo Jesus, but at the very same time, God is working through even evil, even the machinations of Peter and Judas and Satan himself to accomplish his will. And in the story of the temptation, Jesus is taught not to invoke his supernatural powers. So he knows that on the cross, he's going to have to resist the temptation to say, Dear God, please shut down my nerve senses so that I don't feel the pain. I mean, he could have, right? He could have called 10,000 angels. No, my friends, it is Jesus who is a 100% human. He's also divine, but that doesn't take one percentage away from his, from his humanity. He is going through this agony in exactly the same way that you and I would if we were facing the same. Except he surrenders to the will of God. And there's a lesson for us in that. My friends, there are two other things that flow from the notion of Jesus' humanity. And those are that Jesus here needs his friends. I thought about that this week several times, and I was just struck by Jesus saying in verse 38, remain here and be alert with me. 
guys, I need you to be with me. Just stay awake in the garden long enough so that I know that when I'm praying that there's somebody there, a buddy, who at least has me in sight. It says in Genesis, it is not good that man should be alone. And we who are made in the image of God are made male and female in the image of God. And here Jesus needs friends. Of course he's God, I don't know how badly he needs you, but he welcomes friends. And one of the ways that we can enter into friendship with God is through prayer on a regular basis. And when we do so, we're not just being obedient, but we're connecting with God. James Houston has written a book called The Transforming Friendship. The Transforming Friendship. And of course, it's a book about prayer and about having Jesus and God as your friend. One more thing to note about the humanity of Jesus here that we can identify with. There are people who once went to our church who no longer are, and that's fairly regular, but it pains me and it pains us all. And one of the reasons I'm quite sure is disappointment with God, unanswered prayer. You know, Lord, it would have been so simple if you could have just intervened. But when I was praying, I prayed and there's nothing back, no word back at all. That was the same experience that Jesus has here. He comes to the garden and he prays, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Silence. Part of Jesus's agony here is learning that over the next few days, God isn't going to intervene. God isn't going to answer back. We know that because of Jesus's cry of dereliction on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are you feeling like God has forsaken you? Are you wondering about the reason for unanswered prayer? Well, Jesus would say here, join the club, pal. It's part of my walk as a human being, even as a sinless human being. And of course, God had a purpose for it, and we believe that ultimately God does have a purpose for the bad things that happen to us. Not that those bad things are good, but God is able to bring good from them. Notice here that the betrayer is later called in the translation, the deliverer. The one who betrays is the one who will, on behalf of God, be the deliverer. So God is able to work through unanswered prayer disappointment with God. If only we hang in there and realize this is pretty common experience. Chalk it up. If it happened to Jesus, it happens to you. Keep on, carry on, stay in the faith. Don't give up. It's part of the package. And one day and only then shall we know. We've looked at the humanity of Jesus and we've seen a vulnerable Jesus a perfect Jesus who is walking through the sorest hour on our behalf and who's going to rescue us from our own failed humanity. The sheep will be scattered, but I shall go ahead of you to Galilee, which he does, of course, after his resurrection. So we've seen here the humanity of Jesus and our own humanity, and his makes up for ours, and we dare not pretend to be like him we have to let him do his job, and our job is to be humble and to respond with an attitude of contrition and dependency upon him.
The second thing are lessons on discipleship. And I had said this when we began our passion narrative, that there would be lessons on discipleship that come through here. And there are two, in fact, that stand out and that actually recall important passages from Matthew previously. One is the Lord's Prayer, and the other is the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' teaching about the end times. More than once in this occasion, Jesus invokes the language of the Lord's Prayer as if to say to us, guys, I taught you this before. Gals, I taught you this before, but here's how to do it. He says when he's praying, my father, he changes Mark's Abba father to my father, as if to invoke recollection of the Lord's prayer. And of course he says, thy will be done, not mine. And then later he turns to his disciples and he says in verse uh, 40, keep alert and continue to pray, pray so that you do not enter into temptation. So we get a wonderful, we get a wonderful window here on how to live out the Lord's Prayer, and we learn it from Jesus himself. My Father discloses an intimacy with Jesus. It's a unique relationship that Jesus had with his father that we participate in, but which is not ours alone. Jesus did not say, remain here and pray with me. Jesus said, remain here and be alert with me while I pray my father. Jesus is doing this for us, my friends, but he's still echoing the language that he taught us to pray when we say our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy will, hallowed be thy name, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We see here a commentary or an elaboration of what those words mean in the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I guess when I was thinking about the Lord's Prayer, I was thinking that this is sort of just an acknowledgement. Yes, God, your will be done. Um, you know, I'm going to carry on with my life, and I wish that your will would be done, and that's all fine. But Jesus takes this one step further and deeper, and he says, friends, it's laying everything on the line and saying, your will be done, even if I end up getting killed. That was Jesus' stark choice. Even if I have to die, your will be done. And of course, as a human, Jesus was in dread of death here as much as any of us can imagine to be. There's something about human beings that just wants us to continue to live, and that stands in, in awe and in, in fear of death. My soul is sorely sad to death. Nevertheless, not thy will, not my will, but thine be done. And he says, in addition to my father, and in addition to not my will be done, but thine, he says in verse 41, keep alert and continue to pray so that you enter not into temptation. Stay with me for a minute. Critics have said, well, this is ridiculous. Um, the story must have brought some other chunk in here because uh, it wasn't the disciples who were entering into temptation. The temptation was purely Jesus's not to die. And as I thought about that, I thought, well, that's really not true because, of course, they were tempted to deny Jesus. They were tempted to abandon him, which they succumbed to because they did not remain awake. But I think Jesus here is actually in the midst of his own suffering, teaching us a lesson. The supreme teacher in the midst of the garden experience when he's contemplating his own death, he says, guys, keep alert and continue to pray 
so that when it comes your turn, you enter not into temptation. Now it's my turn. The hour has come. But when it comes your turn, and here we're thinking towards the end of time, the Olivet Discourse that we read about a few chapters earlier. Remember the language of stay awake, be alert. You don't know the hour when he's coming. And we learn that there's going to be a time of tribulation that's going to happen that is just unbelievable and terrifying and that we need to watch out for and we need to gear up for by the power of the Spirit. Jesus, in the midst of his coming back, he says, oh, guys, you're asleep. <laughs> well, this does not bode well for the future. You remember, I taught you in the Olivet Discourse that you should not fall asleep like those uh, maidens did who didn't bring enough oil. And he says in the present continuous, verse 41, keep alert and continue to pray so that you not enter into temptation. And then comes a little lesson. You see, guys and gals, on the one hand, the spirit is eager, but yet the flesh is feeble. What was the disciples' problem here? It wasn't that Jesus came along and, uh, and, and said, you know what, Satan is just going to attack you right now. The problem is that flesh is feeble. And that's why in verse 43, Jesus says, again, upon returning, he found them sleeping. And Matthew never lets any word go by superfluously. He takes out a lot of the extra commentary that's in Mark. So his words, for their eyes were heavy, is not a throwaway line. He's saying, guess what was their downfall? It wasn't an attack from Satan. Their eyes were heavy. They were tempted like uh, many of us. You know you should be at work, but if you just hit that snooze button one more time, you can go into wonderland of sleep and snooze. It's often the simplest things that will keep us from uh, fulfilling our role and destiny as disciples. Upon returning, he found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. A third time Jesus goes away and he says the same thing. And then he comes to the disciples. And this is if to recall the Olivet Discourse passage, when Jesus says, you know what? It's gonna come at a time when you don't know. This curtain will be drawn and it'll be too late. He says to them in verse 45, you sleep still and take your rest. Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us be going, because my Deliverer has come. Friends, somebody is ready, and that's Jesus, because he's been vigilant in prayer. And the other bunch are not ready, despite his warnings in the Olivet Discourse, because as I see even some of us doing in the midst of this sermon, 5.20 in the afternoon, it's hot. Our eyes are heavy. Jesus is ready. The disciples were not. And I think the message is, disciples, watch out for the simple things. Be vigilant, because your hour is coming when there will be a time of great tribulation. Take my advice from the prayer that I give in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the end time did come, and it was not pretty. I've added verse 47, and while he was still speaking, Jesus is up, he's ready. Uh, he goes to meet Judas. He's determined it's the will of the Father. Judas, one of the 12, came and with a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And the deliverer, 
normally translated the betrayer, but it's the same. The one who betrays is the one who is also ordained to be the deliverer, had given them a sign. Remember the signs of the end times of the Olivet Discourse? Here's a little window. And Jesus, Judas's sign was, whomever I shall kiss, he it is. Nab him. Jesus did the will of the Father so that you and I could have the assurance of the forgiveness of sins which comes through his death on the cross and his resurrection. Take example from him here. Live up to your humanity and thank God for his obedient humanity as well as his divinity. Amen.